0: Welcome to the Littler Workplace Policy Institute podcast. Insider briefings on the latest legislative and regulatory developments affecting employers.
1: Hello, everybody. Thanks for uh, listening into this uh, WPI podcast. This is Michael Lutito, the co-chair of Littler's WPI Workplace Policy Institute. I'm here today with Jim Peretti, our colleague, also part of WPI, uh, and the former general counsel to Ms. Vicki Lipnick who's been on the EEOC in a variety of capacities over the last several years. And uh, Jim, it's almost a year, so uh, so happy anniversary.
0: Hey, thank you, Michael. Glad to be here.
1: Tell us a little bit about the uh, current status of the members uh, on, on the EEOC as well as the general counsel, because I know there's been some nominations and some other issues and concerns about quorums. So maybe you could just uh, give our listeners a little bit of an insight on that.
0: Sure. Well, it's been a lot of moving parts this year. In January of 2019, the EEOC lost its quorum uh, when it went down to two members, uh, at the time Acting Chair Victoria Lipnick, a Republican, uh, and Commissioner Charlotte Burroughs, a Democrat. With only two seated commissioners, the commission had no quorum and really lacked the ability to engage in any fundamental policymaking. The day-to-day operations continued, um, but they really didn't have the authority to to wield the full authority of the commission in uh, making policy decisions, affecting prior cases, things of that sort. In May of this year, the chair, Janet Dillon, a Republican, was confirmed bringing the commission membership back up to three. So they now have a quorum, and interestingly, for the first time in this administration since January of 2017, uh, there's a Republican majority on the commission, which up till now there has not been. So for the last two and a half years, really the agency, I think, is focused on bread and butter issues, things of that sort. We may see now that we have a working Republican majority as well as a quorum, that they start to engage in a little more policy making and looking back to the prior administration.
1: It, it was a real effort to get Ms. Dillon confirmed. I mean, there was a letter that was sent up to the White House and to the Hill. WPI actually signed it encouraging them to take up uh, Miss Dillon's candidacy in order to Get that Republican majority because we went a long time. But this seems to be a pattern with the administration, the inability to get a lot of these nominations done in a very quick way.
0: Yeah, that's certainly been the case, at least with respect to EEOC. Although the logjam does appear to be breaking. Earlier this month, on August 1st, the Senate confirmed Democratic Commissioner Charlotte Burroughs in her renomination and Republican General Counsel Sharon Fast Gustafson. So now the commission has a safe quorum for at least the foreseeable future, uh, as well as its first confirmed general counsel in the current administration. So for for people like uh, like
1: you and me, who live in the bubble of, of Washington, who thinks that what we've just talked about here is really important, as we uh, probably bore our listeners to say, so what? Yeah, you know, from a day-to-day process standpoint, I get an EEOC charge. And it's the same investigator that I've had for the last 20 years, and you know things don't really change. Yeah. How do these nominations, uh, the, the composition, the lack of a quorum, the not having a general counsel, in the real world, from a client perspective, to
0: that HR person listening to us, the in-house counsel? How does it matter? Has it impact them? Right. I, I think, and you make a very good point. On the day-to-day operations, if you, you know, if you've been served a charge, it doesn't matter whether there are two commissioners sitting in Washington or four, or what the what the composition of the commission is. That sort of field activity largely continues on day-to-day. Where it does make a difference, particularly around the general counsel, is you know what what become the agency's strategic priorities. They are still operating under the prior administration's uh, strategic enforcement plan. Um, they haven't revisited those substantive enforcement priorities in the last two and a half years. Um, they'll now have the capability to do so that means where does the agency choose to put its resources is it going to invest more in enforcement is it going to do more in the areas of outreach and education say around harassment and me too very topical issues these days Uh, similarly where is the where is the commission going to choose to bring litigation is it going to shoot uh, you know I think in the prior administration, we saw a lot of swinging for the bleachers with some of these cases. In the last two years, I think it's been a little bit more, you know, bread and butter and and sort of focused on getting folks the relief to which they are entitled. Uh, So I think it, it does have an impact. It sometimes takes a little while for that impact of what happens in Washington to actually make it out to the folks who are in the field. But we've seen a number of policy areas, even in the last year, where you know, EEOC is poised to be making some policy decisions and trying to move forward on some things. Well,
1: talking about making the policy decisions, there's been a lot of discussion uh, recently about the delegation from the commissioners to the general counsel. And I guess there was some discussion that that was going to happen and now it's not going to happen. So, I get the impression that the general counsel is a very powerful individual based upon this delegation from the commissioners in making decisions that I'm going to sue A versus B on theories X versus Y, because this is our priority for this year. Um,
0: That's very correct. Uh, Last year, the EEOC brought something like 200 lawsuits in federal district court. Of those, maybe 20 of them were actually approved by the full commission. The remaining 180 were done via the delegation of authority to the general counsel, which has been around for some number of years where the commission, going back 10, 15 years, took the position that we are not going to consider every potential lawsuit that comes before us, we're going to broadly delegate that power to the general counsel with the understanding that certain categories of cases, high-profile cases, cases that may be making new law, cases that are about to consume a lot of resources, you know, large systemic cases or pattern and practice cases, those should come up to the commissioners for review and final approval. But I stress that's that's but a fraction of the the cases that the commission brings. And that delegation has been subject to some criticism, both from sitting members of the commission as well as oversight committees in Congress have suggested that maybe the general counsel's authority needs to be pulled in a little bit and that you know under title seven it's the commission's statutory duty to approve and choose to commence litigation do the commissioners want to play a little more active role in that so you're right earlier this month we heard reports that there was an attempt to revisit the delegation i don't know that that's proceeding directly apace but i suspect in the you know weeks and months to come we will probably see some uh, activity around there and whether the commission chooses to fully repeal a delegation such that they are now going to consider every lawsuit or whether they choose to just take a a subset of those cases that they want to keep their hands on you know i think that remains to be seen in how it works out but i i I think at bottom it really is an issue of good government i mean you are you are sworn commissioner and one of the few things you are charged under the statute to do is review and commence litigation so I, i do expect we will see some movement on the delegation question a related question is so the commission has delegated power to the general counsel who has in turn delegated power to his regional attorneys and that's something that I know a number of our clients have, have had issues with in the past where, you know, for better or for worse, you feel like a, an attorney in a certain region or a certain office of the country is, you know, maybe going a little bit off the ranch in terms of how far they, he or she feels they can stretch their authority. So I'll be, I'll be curious to see if, in fact, the EEOC decides to both, you know, rein in what's been delegated to the GC as well as try to keep its hands a little more fully on the operations of the uh, the GC's regional attorneys around the country. There's something fifteen of them, and each of them sort of very powerful in their own right. Well, people are policy, and you know a lot
1: of these individuals. And you know, for those that are listening in, if you find yourself in that type of potential situation, you know, certainly give WPI a call. We might be able to, you know, give you some insights and give some strategic advice as to personality A versus personality B. Sure. Um, because they're they're all very different. Let me go on to uh, to something that uh, you in particular have spent a tremendous amount of time on over the past few months, and that's this EEO-1 issue. Uh, and talk about the practicality for our clients. This does have a lot of practicality because, you know, before it was sort of an innocuous form, and then all of a sudden, there's this, there's another part of the form. And, sure. Um, it, it, this is, ladies and gentlemen, if if you want to hear about Weedy, this redefines Weedy. Yeah. Um, and Jim's challenges. Is to get us out of the and, weeds and to make sure that we're right. sitting
0: on top of the grass in 90 seconds or less. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it's telling. It's 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 a true Washington D.C. moment that uh, the EEOC uh, in 2016, via something called the Paperwork Reduction Act, took a form that had about 140 data cells on it for demographic, sort of reporting the composition of your workforce. Um, and increased its size uh, something like 2,000% to a form that now has over 3,600 data cells on it. So if you're listening to our podcast today, I'm going to think you're probably at least a little tuned in to what EEO1 reporting is. But very briefly, for years, employers of a certain size, usually 100 or more, 50 or more if you're a federal contractor, have had to file a form with the federal government you know, listing out the composition of their workforce by race, by ethnicity, by gender, and by job category. Um, Not a terribly burdensome form, produces some useful information for the agency. That's been going on for years, and I think people have mostly gotten used to it. Uh, In 2016, uh, they proposed a dramatic expansion of the form. So for the first time, private sector employers would be required to provide detailed information on employee compensation and hours worked to the commission on this eeo one form what was called you know component two and um, this was a fairly controversial expansion um, it was passed on a party line vote i think there are a lot of folks who still think you know the agency is in terms of where they're going with this is not you know going to gather a lot of useful information but without walking everybody through every detail uh, in august of twenty seventeen it looked like that proposal had been tabled um, the new administration looked back and said no we're gonna rescind our prior approval uh, and everyone sort of assumed it had gone dormant and this was not something anyone had to worry about. Flash forward to March of 2019, where in a lawsuit filed in federal district court, uh, the district court for the District of Columbia rules that no, in fact, uh, the re- rescission of the prior approval was not lawful. And to cut to the chase, EEOC now has to commence collecting compensation data. The agency has announced its plans to do so. That information is due to be filed for calendar years 2017 and 2018 by September 30th of this year, 2019. The EEOC's reporting portal was recently opened so that this component to information is now ready to be You know, soon to be uploaded and received. But clients who are sitting and looking should start to be thinking about what they have to do to gather this necessary information. um, What their reporting requirements are, because they're a little bit different than what they are for the you know for that first part of the form, as well as in the broader picture, may want to start to look a little strategically at their pay equity systems. You know, maybe now is a good time to think about doing a compensation audit, particularly if you're working with counsel where you can. Do that on a privileged basis, and you have the ability to see what your numbers look like before you're handing them over to the federal government. So, the bottom
1: line for the, for the client is that this data and this component two is necessary to be filed by, would you say, September, 30, September 30th? September right? 30th of this year. Um, uh, going backwards for a couple of years. So, the government is putting hundreds of thousands of businesses yes. um, through this process to gather all of this information and all of these different data points. So, obviously, the government thinks that it's really important to have this information because this information is going to be so useful in order to give us all of these tremendous insights, right? Well,
0: certainly certainly, some folks think that that's, That was a bit of a
1: sarcastic is. question in case you didn't get that, in folks. In
0: case that didn't come through. Uh, no, certainly there are some folks who believe that this information is useful, but there are, are you know many others who believe that it's not and that, frankly, the cost to employers, the cost to the agency, simply put, the wick isn't worth the candle. In fact, in this lawsuit that is ongoing, um, the EEOC's own chief data officer testified in open court that he felt that the information this tool would gather really would not be of significant help to the agency in focusing its resources and bringing pay discrimination cases or rooting out pay discrimination. As I mentioned, it was approved on a party-line basis in the prior administration. I suspect Now that, you know, we have a quorum again and a a working Republican majority that at least for the future going forward, the commission may wish to revisit this question and decide that particularly now having gone through a cycle and received the data that they're going to collect, they may look at this and say, no, you know, upon reconsideration, this is really not something we're going to put employers through uh, a second time. Um, This information is not giving us what we need. That remains to be seen, but that's certainly one one aspect on the horizon. But in the here and now, while there is still an, an appeal for filed in the case that's pending in court. It does not appear likely that any court intervention is going to happen before a reporting date of September 30th. So at this point, we are advising clients, if you are obliged to file, you probably want to start thinking about what is the information you need to collect, what, if anything, do you have to do with your HRIS systems to make sure uh, systems are talking to one another and that you can pull the data that the agency requires as well as then scrubbing it, making sure it's, you know, filed confidentially and, you know, to the extent that uh, do everything you can do to make sure it is not disclosed and and ultimately stays simply within the agency or, you know, the Office of Federal Contract Compliance. Well,
1: Jim knows so much about the eo one We could spend the next hour talking about this. But good news, folks, we're not going to do that. But if you do have some questions, about what your filing obligations are and the more strategic issue about going forward because we've been intimately involved in this issue, especially Jim and WPI, and we'll continue to be engaged with this issue. You know, let us know and we'll be happy to give you the benefit of our thoughts. A couple of quickies because uh, I think we're coming up against our, our deadlines here. But just talk to us very briefly about the wellness situation, because there was a recent lawsuit that was filed on that issue Yes. um, in the regulations. Just talk about that. And then I want to talk uh, just a little bit about uh, about Me Too, that you've been so
0: intimately involved in as well. But let's just take wellness. Sure. Uh, Well, in 2016, the agency issued uh, regulations defining voluntary wellness programs for purposes of uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. Uh, without taking our listeners into the weeds an employer can generally not ask medical inquiries of an employer gather medical information about them unless it's directly related to the job there is an exception to that general rule for workplace wellness programs that are done on a voluntary basis so for years people have asked "Well, what does the eeoc consider to be voluntary what you know what kind of incentive can i give you or not the eeoc proposed regulations those were again struck down in federal court so right now we're back to sort of uh, you know the wild wild west in terms of i don't the agency does not have a stated position on whether or when a penalty becomes so great as to render a wellness program involuntary and thus violating either the ADA or GINA. They brought a high-profile lawsuit in the fall of 2014 against an employer trying to enjoin the application of their wellness program. That lawsuit they lost rather spectacularly more recently we've seen cases you know a case that has just been filed in a district court you know alleging that another you know fairly high profile wellness program violates the ADA by terms of the uh, incentives and penalties it provides to workers to provide this this information so the issue continues to be out there EEOC I'm hopeful will you know turn itself to pro- to you know, trying to revisit and provide some guidance. It has been on the regulatory agenda for some time, but obviously somewhat stalled out in the absence of a, of a majority and a quorum. Um, so I think that is an issue they're going to turn themselves to, the, I, I hope, sooner rather than later. But it is complicated. There is not an easy way out of the woods, as anyone who practices in the wellness and employee benefits area can tell you. There's, you know, there's a lot of there there. There's so, a lot of there there, and, and you've been at the forefront
1: of that. And for those that are interested in it, if you want to talk to Jim further about it, He's easy to get a hold of. So next issue, Me Too, and then we're going to talk about the
0: Supreme Court decisions. And then we're going to let our listeners get on with their day. Well, Me Too in particular continues to be a strategic priority of the agency, and I think that's one that enjoys bipartisan support. The EEOC was very active last year in the harassment space. Not surprisingly, since October of 2017 and what was, you know, sort of the birth of the Me Too movement, they've seen increased numbers of charges filed. The agency itself has recovered more money from more victims of harassment and discrimination. That continues to be a high-profile priority of theirs. I think it was in fiscal year 18 that Congress gave them an extra, you know, $15 million solely to devote to harassment prevention and training and education. So that continues to be a high-profile issue for the agency. They continue to bring, you know, fairly big cases in that area, as well as, you know, sort of the routine processing of charges and trying to get the word out this has been a product of a task force that was formed back in 2015, 2016, that then-commissioner, then-acting chair, uh, Vicki Lipnick, was very involved in, and she sort of made this one of her signature issues. So I suspect that will continue even as we, you know, sort of see a change in leadership there. The other issue to which you allude is uh, a couple of cases currently sitting before the Supreme Court, which concerns the issue of whether existing civil rights protections under Title VII, which prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, can't discriminate on the basis of being male or female, Does that also extend to include things such as sexual orientation, gay or lesbian or bisexual, as well as gender identity? And and does it protect transgender employees? And there are a trio of cases that are now before the Supreme Court. They indicated earlier this spring that they would review these cases. I suspect we'll see oral argument in the fall and a decision, this strikes me as one of those cases that'll be the ones that folks are waiting on the steps of the courthouse to hear sometime next June. But basically what the Supreme Court is scheduled or should decide is whether Title VII, as it it is currently written, extends so far as to include protection against uh, sexual orientation discrimination or against gender identity Discrimination That has been an issue on which the agency, uh, there's been a split within the government. EEOC since 2012 has taken the position that gender identity is covered under the statute, and since 2015 that sexual orientation is covered under the statute the current leadership of the department of justice takes a different position that these are not encompassed within title 7. So the good news for all is that the supreme court is likely to, you know, determine the case one way or another. The less than good news is I think no matter what decision they issue, you're going to see a lot of folks uh, on one side or the other upset. And then, you know, as our constitutional system provides if Congress is not happy with what the court decides, Congress is free to uh, go back and change the law. So this is one that we'll, we'll stay tuned for. Um, I expect the agency will just sort of continue on its current course until we get a ruling from the high court. Again, if I had to predict, I'd say sometime towards the end of next June, 2020.
1: And our clients will be among the first to hear about it because uh, we publish all of our ASAPs and other materials, uh, a lot
0: of which you write in this space and I will try to keep the clients informed. And I will be there on the steps of the courthouse with my laptop, ready to press send the minute we get a ruling. That's right. You're writing the drafts right now. Exactly. Right, right as
1: we speak. As we speak. That's right, because we're very proactive. And we'll probably wind up doing another podcast about that. I fully expect so. Well, thank you, everybody, uh, for, for listening in. I appreciate it. Uh, Workplace Policy Institute's there for you to try to give you a voice even if you don't want to be visible when you speak. So uh, give us a call
0: and we'll try to help you out. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure to talk to you this morning. Thanks, Jim. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue to discover other labor and employment podcast series from littler the largest global employment and labor law practice visit littler.com slash podcasts